When we started the Lincoln Project, our goal was to defeat Donald Trump and Trumpism and Trump's enablers. I don't care if you like my principles. I don't care if you like what I believe in. Do you want to win or not? We don't have a client. We weren't here to move some legislative agenda item. We're here to kick the shit out of Donald Trump. That's veteran political consultant Rick Wilson talking in a new five-part documentary about the groundbreaking super PAC he and a handful of other Republican consultants founded called The Lincoln Project. The group raised nearly $90 million during the 2020 election, using the cash to craft devastating attack ads hammering Donald Trump and his MAGA allies. As Election Day approached two years ago, The Lincoln Project was getting tons of media attention, and Wilson and his Confederates were congratulating themselves on their ability to use their attack dog skills to stop the threat to democracy posed by the then president. But how effective really was the Lincoln Project, and what to make of the internecine rivalries among the principals and allegations of personal enrichment and a sexual harassment scandal? The documentary, now airing on Showtime, takes an unblinking look at the controversies surrounding the group and raises important questions about what they say about the state of modern politics. We'll talk to the filmmakers Kareem Amir and Fisher Stevens on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. I am really jazzed about uh, this episode of the pod, uh, first because uh, the film, The Lincoln Project, is really fascinating. To me, it reminded me of, remember, the war room after the 1992 presidential campaign in which uh, George Stephanopoulos and James Carville and Paul Begala became famous, which was a sort of nitty gritty look at how the boiler room of how political campaigns are fought. And this is, you know, very similar to that in, you know, the filmmakers had access to the Lincoln Project as they were crafting their ads, as they were having their meetings. You saw how they put, how the sausage was made, as it were. But at the same time, it sure raised a lot of questions about how these folks did business and what it says about how political campaigns are fought. It was um, so inside that at times it becomes quite uncomfortable and sort of like watching a, a, a train wreck as, as things evolve. But, you know, the fact that these filmmakers were able to get as inside as they did is actually kind of revealing about who these people are. And we should in a second talk about um, who the principal yep. characters are, because it, it strikes me that the kinds of people who would let filmmakers into their inner sanctum like that are people not all of them, but some of them anyway, who may have vanity issues, ego issues, <laughs> you um, think? Who, right. who, you know, who, who, who see the movie about themselves uh, in their heads and, and want everybody else to see the, the, that movie. And of course, that also becomes, as you see in this documentary, when you watch it, their downfall, vanity, ego, hubris. And so it's just a, it's a fascinating account and very human. Yeah, th these people don't lack for in the self-mythologizing sort of uh, strain of, of behavior. But as you say, they, they include really some of the all-stars or semi-all-stars of Republican of the Republican consulting class. Probably the one that most people know is Steve Schmidt, who famously served as uh, John McCain's campaign manager in uh, 2008. But it also includes a fair number of other people like uh, Rick Wilson, Reed Galen, you Stuart know, Stevens. Stuart Stevens. These are all people who have for almost their entire careers been deep in the Republican consulting class, producing some of the most effective and 
possibly outrageous attack ads or attack campaigns on a variety of Democratic candidates and who just somehow or another, the the switch flipped in 2020 and they went after Trump. And this documentary really kind of chronicles the, the beginning and end of it. I should say, like, we've known some of these guys for years. I mean, Steve Schmidt, before he was the campaign manager for John McCain in 2008, he'd been the sort of deputy to uh, Karl Rove at the Bush White House. In fact, Danny, remember when Rove came to uh, the offices of Newsweek uh, during one of those campaigns, probably the 2004 campaign? Yeah, I think it was 2004 because it was during the convention. Yeah, right. And uh, I was up in the Newsweek. Uh, what do they call it? Top of the week in that in that uh, conference room that used to be the GM boardroom. And and what I remember was that was that Schmidt was not actually even sitting at the table. He was kind of a backbencher. And Rove just kept referring to him as bullet. Yeah, because... he, he was Rove's gopher, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At yeah. The time, and he had this right? kind of menacing. Yeah, I remember being really struck by him. Rove called him bullet because he has that, you know, that kind of slightly pointy bald head. But yeah. I mean, look, these guys are, I, I think it's referred to, they're referred to in the film as this way, as political gunslingers, right? And, um, you know, whose skills were to be attack dogs and smear rival candidates with whatever they could. And, you know, look, they also were good sources at times about what was going on in political campaigns. I remember Stuart Stevens, um, who is, you know, one of the founders of the Lincoln Project, was very involved. He's, he appears in the film quite a bit, talking to him during the 2000 election when he was working for George W. Bush, right? And he was giving me this spiel about how, you know, he'd been a Republican consultant for years, but this was his cause. This was his moment. This was, you know, he, he sort of portrayed George W. Bush as an inspirational figure uh, who motivated him to really want to get uh, Bush elected. And, you know, I remember thinking, Look, you know, there are a lot of reasons after eight years of the Clinton White House that people would have wanted, you know, an argument could have been made for a change and the election of Bush. But an inspirational figure, <laughs> somebody who's, you know, this was a higher cause. It didn't make any sense to me. But, you know, look, Stuart Stevens was spinning me. And that's what these guys do. One of the interesting things about this uh, documentary series, too, is the people who made it. So one of the kind of characters off camera throughout most of it is Fisher Stevens, who was the one of the directors and filmmakers. And our listeners may know him as Hugo Becker on Succession, the uh, slightly ass-kissing, oleaginous communications executive for Waystar Royco, who uh, never never stops doing whatever uh, dirty deeds our uh, villains on Succession watch. So it's, it's sort of uh, fascinating to watch him and listen to him uh, come to these gunslingers himself. And look, there is a larger issue here that is is worth talking about and grappling with, which is what is the best way to fight Trumpism? And, you know, from these guys' perspective is you fight fire with fire. Trump tells so many lies and so many distortions and is such a threat to democracy. You, you, you hit him with everything you can, hammer him away and, uh, you know, depict him as the preposterous liar that he is. That's one school of thought that that's what was sort of the motivating, you know, thinking behind the, the whole Lincoln project. But, you know, the film also get, you know, raises questions. Is that the most effective way? of fighting Trumpism. If, you know, if the purpose is to win elections, do you want to, you know, pound away and add to the outrage machine? Or do you want to try to find those persuadables as small as they are in the middle and try to coax them away from Trump? In a and that is, and that you see fashion. that fault line throughout this documentary series and among the various characters uh, and political consultants who are in it. And then, of course, the other larger and kind of more universal theme, which is what we referenced at the beginning of this conversation, is the hubris and vanity and how all of their successes, including raising gobs and gobs and gobs of money and turning this organization into a very successful content machine 
as they call it, you know, really goes to their heads. They became celebrities and they were loving it. And at a certain point, there's the sense that uh, they start losing their focus, losing um, their focus on what the main objective of their organization was. And of course, it becomes about money, it becomes about control, and uh, they end up fighting among themselves. And 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 that is, uh, that's the, tra- the, the train wreck aspect of right. this documentary, which is fascinating and at times hard to watch. I've got one more wonky point to make about this that, Victoria, I hope you'll appreciate. And that is the uh, our, our toothless campaign finance laws and how they are and the toothless FEC in enforcing them because, you know, one of the issues that blows up the organization at, at some point is all the money that was going to one of the founders regains yeah summit it's his political media buying arm and this is the way fec laws are skirted you, you know they found these consultants found these companies and then gobs of money go into those companies they're, it's completely opaque about how they're spent how much is going to the consultants themselves as opposed to the media ad buys but the fec lets the campaigns get away with this so you even though there's a law that says expenditures are to be reported you see in this case what was it you know 20 million dollars 27 million dollars that went to summit strategies summit strategies you have no idea how that money was being spent and how much went to Reed Galen himself, how much went to media buys, how much went to others who were hired by the firm um, and God knows what they were doing. And this is the way campaigns get away with a lot of um, Well, Mike, to put, put in, to put an even finer point on it, this is the way it, the movie demonstrates that a pack gets away with it. But the amount of self-dealing that PACs can engage in is is shocking. And this is something it, that the Trump PAC has been exceptionally effective at, which is that they set up their own companies owned by them and then funnel vast quantities of money to themselves personally. And it becomes a pass-through mechanism for personal enrichment using the campaign finance system. But it is a bipartisan phenomenon. I mean, remember the Clinton campaign got fined by the FEC years after the fact for hiding its oppo research payments to Fusion GPS through its law firm, listing them as legal legal fees when in fact it wasn't legal fees it was opposition research so you know that is uh, another way that political expenditures that should be reported to the public uh, are not. But that's a wonky point. Uh, There's a great human drama in this film. We've got the uh, filmmakers Kareem Amer and Fisher Stevens uh, with us. So let's get to it. We now have with us the filmmakers who made The Lincoln Project, Kareem Amir and Fisher Stevens. Kareem, welcome back to Skullduggery. And uh, Fisher, welcome for the first time. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. You guys are always uh, breaking it down on the political side in uh, very important ways for for people like Fisher and I. We love your, your well, thank you and congrats on the film. It really is riveting and um, gives folks a look at how political campaigns are fought these days in ways I don't think uh, most folks have seen. So a uh, really riveting film. I, I guess I just want to start out by asking both of you, what prompted you to want to focus on the Lincoln Project initially. And when you started, you could not have known the twists and turns that this story was going to take that really make the film. So just sort of walk us through why you chose them to begin with. And as the story evolved in ways nobody could have expected what you were thinking, what you were reacting. Well, I think for me, I was flabbergasted, frustrated, pissed off with the way Trump was dealing with COVID. And I'd been a political activist like Kareem for many years, and I galvanized a group of artists to make a commercial about Trump's incompetence for how he was handling COVID. 
And we were struggling to do anything decent because that's not our specialty. And then we, uh, I saw Morning in America and I was like, well, somebody's done it, this group. And then I learned about, that's how I found out about the Lincoln Project. And then the campaign was happening and I wanted to do some political activism and I was trying to figure out what to do and it was COVID. And Kareem and I had been friends and somebody had given us access or given me access to the Lincoln Project and Kareem access to the Lincoln Project at the same time to possibly do a film, a documentary, because we heard they were interested in being filmed. And we teamed together because we knew, A, it's a huge story. B, Kareem has just done the great hack, which to me was like the best doc at the time about using social media and politics. And I had no idea about that side of the story. And I thought, wow, Kareem will have all this knowledge that I won't have on that. And then we we just felt like, what a better, what better lens to watch the 2020 election than through the guys that I personally have been fighting for the last 20 years. And um, and so that's how we teamed up. And Kareem will have his own perspective on it. But it just felt like he was the perfect person to do this with. It was COVID. You know, succession hadn't gotten up and running yet again. We were still. We should point out that you are an actor in succession, which right. all Skullduggery listeners have been watching for the last several years. Who do you play, by the way? I play Hugo Baker, uh, number two guy in the comms and PR for Waystar, uh, Logan Roy's company. And I think also the guys at uh, Lincoln Project were big succession fans too. So it kind of helped them give Kareem and I the access. Because there were a lot of doc film crews, I think, right, Kareem, that wanted to to yeah. bed. It was competitive. It was competitive. But we we thought we really thought there was some kind of we wanted to capture. It was originally obviously going to be a movie. We had no idea it was going to turn out the way. But we thought we were making a doc just to show the 2020 political campaign in a different lens. Just one quick follow up on this, if I'm hearing you correctly. And Kareem, you can answer this. These guys wanted somebody to make a film about them and they reached out to you is that correct i don't know if they i mean i, I think it's i know they're they can be quite vain uh, I, i'm not <laughs> so. oh really Newsflash. <laughs> i i didn't catch that <laughs> from the film <laughs> and they're never, they're never short to take credit on uh, what they've done and, and make sure the world knows about it and they're and they're very good at communicating what they want to be communicated Look, I think that they were to be to be fair, they were on this meteoric rise, right? I mean, this was a time, this was a group that started with a op-ed that you know, with some you know notable names and some important uh, people who had been in, in the Republican establishment, and they thought they were going to go on a road show and um, and raise some money doing events, and then COVID happened, right? And so their whole plan kind of fell apart, and then they turned into and then. All of a sudden, you know, they were able to crack into the kind of Twitter zeitgeist and able to kind of become a sensation online and repurpose their their talents there. And I think for people like Fisher and I, you know, Fisher and I met in Tahrir Square in 2011 during the revolution, where I was making a film called The Square and Fisher had come down to kind of be part of what was happening and helped us with the movie. And we always had this kind of political inkling and, and, and friendship in many ways. And I think like many people, the idea that, you know, of course, Trump 2016 is, you know, the the, the cataclysmic event that it, that it was, that we're still in many ways recovering from and making sense of. But the idea that he would win again in 2020 was just such a, an insane proposition, you know, because it's like we could, we've all kind of seen America make mistakes, but we like to believe that America can course correct, right? And so this year we were, you know, with COVID, you know, at its peak, and we both felt a need to want to do something and tell the story, use our skills. And here are these guys who have similar skills, you know, do, using storytelling, but they can pump out stuff so quickly. You know, it takes us a couple of years to make a project. And so it was just interesting. And for me personally, I was very interested because similar with The Great Hack, they were, you know, using political, there was a big political technology story in the heart of this. And also similar to The Great Hack, you know, where we had focused on at that time, Brittany Kaiser, who, you know, had been with Obama and then ended up being part of. The, the team at Cambridge that, that won the Trump campaign and helped get Trump elected, and then now is on this redemption journey as a whistleblower, these guys also kind of had this kind of Frankenstein story. They had been, you know, key operatives in the party for over 30 years and had been instrumental in a lot of the kind of, in shaping a lot of the, the psyche of the Republican um, discourse as, as, as in regards to elections. And so here they were now kind of leaving all that and, and stepping kind of out in a vulnerable place and saying, 
we can't go back to the party once we've declared this war and it's it's either us or him and we're you know we're we're on a mission to take him out and that to me was interesting because it was like what what does this mean you know and and, and it was complicated look don't get me wrong i mean I, i'd be with these guys as fisher said these aren't people that i would like would have identified as political allies, right? Like I have to hold my tongue when Steve Schmidt starts talking about the good old days when Bush and Cheney were around. And I'm like, dude, you realize I'm Muslim American, right? Like Cheney wasn't my friend. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know what good old days you're talking about, but like he destroyed the part of the world I come from. So, you know, let's just, you know, let's not talk about that now though, but you know, sorry. So for the benefit of of the listeners who don't know the story, it's an extraordinary narrative and, and kind of arc. So start by telling us what you all found when you first started rolling and then how that changed over time. And, and then what that revealed about, you know, the sort of human frailties and imperfections of these people, because that's what you see in this documentary. And I just want to kind of set the scene a little bit for our listeners who are coming to this for the first time. Well, just, and also just to answer, we heard they were interested in making a film, right? So it wasn't like they sucked, seek, seeked us out. We we pitched them. So that just to clarify that. I think um, one of the reasons, uh, I, I say when I got there, I found them so much more interesting than I had imagined. And I think Kareem would say the same. And the fact that they let us into their morning meetings and let us watch them make ads the way they did it was so fascinating. And the creativity that just kind of, they were also at this great moment where they were just feeling great about themselves. They were raising money, their ads were successful. They were getting millions of hits on uh, views on all their stuff. So, you know, that's heady. Those are heady times. And that's when people are like at their best on camera. That's when you're popping on camera, you know, you're feeling good, you're, you're moving. So, the other thing that was really interesting was so we got to Park City when they got to Park City, most of them. Only Schmidt and Reed Galen lived there. They were all coming together, which is why we wanted to start filming when we did, because a lot of them hadn't even really met or known each other. You got young kids coming in, doing work that's been online because of COVID. And we, I think both Kareem and I felt like, my God, this is so much better than we thought. And these guys are so much more interesting than we thought. And um, we'd read Stewart's book, It's a Lie. Um, and we'd read, you know, we'd obviously known Steve and Woody Harrelson played him in a movie and we were excited, but it was, they were, they were big characters. And Rick was just like, just, you know, he's a machine with, with bites and sound bites. And that's how he writes his ads. And I think we were quite taken with them and the young Democrats who worked for them that they embraced, that they took in. Well, they were a banner. They they, they kind of, you know, they put up this kind of this symbol, right? The like the Lincoln Project. And I think a lot of different people showed up from different walks of the political spectrum, all under this kind of banner, because I think people felt that this was a way you could fight, right? This is a way you could fight. And it was unique because remember, these guys are used to having like a, a candidate and in this time in this in this situation there was no candidate right it was the candidate was you know win the election uh or beat trump rather and 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 so they were able to move i think with a flexibility and response and 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 just kind of brashness you could say that other campaigns didn't have the ability to and 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 um and for me personally like I had, you know, I'd seen that, like, when we started making The Great Hack, it was after the election had happened, right? So it was like we were trying to make sense of something retrospectively. And this was an opportunity to kind of watch the electioneering process in real time and see what works and what doesn't work and, and how the fight would happen. And then, to Fisher's point, there was this physicality of, like, you know, we both love the movie The War Room. And here these guys were kind of building this war room in Utah where we would be able to actually be with them on this kind of like countdown and that to us made it that's what to us made it accessible to make into a movie because you could actually kind of you know watch them in a way during this time but the arc of the story is is more than that because they're they're very kind of brashness and they're uh, kind of if you will maybe even disdain for the the normal kind of ways campaigns control or are, are careful about what they do very quickly leads to is it their downfall? Is that the is that the word you would use for it? 
Well, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it was very quickly, but what happened was that you had Steve Schmidt, Reed, Rick, and Stewart, kind of these old guard guys that have been dealing with national politics. And then you had these other people coming in, Mike, Jennifer, Ron, who they brought in and they had never really, they didn't know each other, right? So so it, it was like there was clash, the clash did start to happen. And I think all of them, you know, because I come from the acting world, I, I like to use the example where, you know, we all start out together and then a couple of the guys or even get some real fame and success and they start having a bit of blinders on. And that's sort of what happened. A lot of these, except for Steve, Steve was already pretty well known. But other than Steve, like a lot of these guys, just started feeling their oats, feeling their success, and it started to get to them. And they stopped the seeing the big picture maybe at times. Although they always were, the big picture, I'd say, the, the tr- there's two big pictures. There was the Trump big picture, which I feel like they did stay on. And then there was the Lincoln Project big picture, which did, which went a little bit out of control. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think, look, I think there's definitely a story about hubris, uh, you know, and 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 I think that the, that that is something you see in this, you know, that I think, but I think we have to kind of look at their accountability in that, but also I think that the kind of celebrity culture that we're all kind of obsessed with in this country, you know, like I was getting calls at certain points from people, I swear to God, being like, these guys have to start the next Republican party. Like they have to go do this, this and that. Like there was a, we have to remember like how panicked the country was. Like people were going, nuts about the fact that Trump could win again. And I think there was this, you know, there, there, there was this allowance of on their side of allowing a lot of progressives, especially to like w- watch a kind of punching, you know, this kind of like boxing match online through entertaining content that they would provide of like how you could punch back at this troll that nobody knew how to get rid of. Right. And I think that was addictive. And a lot of people were excited to, to go to that. Like we have to admit, like we like the Coliseum of politics. We're kind of all addicted to it. Right. And I think they understood how to give us the best show during that time. But the word addiction, I think, is a really good one, because what I was struck by watching is that, you know, the sort of the dopamine highs from social media. Right. I mean, you know, they were so focused on their Twitter retweets and you could see them kind of getting high. I I was fascinated by this kind of tension, this fault line that runs through it, uh, particularly um, early on in the first couple of episodes between their desire to do kind of psyops and kind of fucking with Trump's head and kind of winning over uh, voters and the sort of persuasion part of it. And you have that wonderful character. She's a wonderful character, the New England grandmom. Jennifer uh, Jennifer Horn. Jennifer Horn, who is, I think, trying trying to keep them down on the ground in a way and saying, let's let's remember what the objective is here. The objective is to win this election and to persuade people to vote for, for Joe Biden. But I think it seems to me, tell me if you agree with this, at a certain point, the objective became, you know, how much reaction can we get to the content that we're putting out there? You know, that it became a hugely kind of ego-driven and vanity-driven affair. Yeah, I think... Uh, they towed the line a little. I mean, th- yeah, I, I, we watched them get bigger and bigger. You know, we watched the money start rolling in. We watched the tweet. Like Kareem said, like, I mean, very famous people would call me too, knowing I had access and going. Th- they became kind of, they, they people looked up to them to help them. Like, literally, get rid of this guy. So I obviously it did probably get to their heads, some of their heads. I won't say all of them at times. And I think they really thought they could take out Lindsey Graham and take out Susan Collins. And and that feeling is very powerful. And I think so maybe. Yeah. And and believe me, I thought they could take out Lindsey Graham and Susan Collins. And there was, definitely was some revenge. There was some moments where revenge. Felt like this was personal, because I think also th- there was a bit of like these weren't people who just were, you know, like us people who were politically opposed to, to to Trump and the cult that had become the Republican Party. These people who knew all these people in the Republican Party had worked with them and were kind of like, what are you doing? Like, you should know better. Like, Lindsay, what are you talking? Well, I think some of them, like, 
It was this yeah. anger that they had toward those people even more than the, the anger me and Fisher had because they were because like. Because also those people would tell them, oh, Trump's a fucking asshole. Oh, the, uh, Lindsay, you know, they would tell these guys. And then so they did. You're right. They had this all other this other layer that we didn't even we couldn't even figure out. But I think, yeah, there was no boss. They never had to test commercials. There was no one saying you can and can't do this. So it they, they became completely untethered. And then they just. They went for it and people were feeding them, man. You know, UTA and probably CAA was trying to sign them. And it was all like happening while we were there, while they're trying to defeat Trump. And it just and money rolling in and MSNBC, CNN. Da, da, da. So it all just started to happen. And I, they're human beings and human beings are frail. And we saw the frailty start to play out and we saw the, the division starting to play and they starting to think about their futures. And it, it was, uh, it was absolutely wild to witness, but it is a story of humanity. It's a human story. And, and that's, I think why we got lucky too. And like, I think also it's important to remember, right? Like you said, you know, what, what did they lose track of the mark in a way and just care about pushing their content? I mean, you could say that, but at the same time, we have to remember what's the metric of success in the election game. It's money raised, right? So as long as that is the metric of success. Which well, we have wait, to- well, Kareem, the metric of success is to win winning. elections. Yeah, um, but, 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 so but, but, it's not how much back- money you raise. But just picking up on Danny's point, you know, there are two scenes that to me really just illustrate what he was saying about the sort of addictive dopamine of social media. You have Rick Wilson, you know, one of the founders, a guy with an interesting background, by the way, you know, who made like one of the most atrocious political ads of of modern times, the attack ad on Max Cleland, a guy who had lost both his legs fighting in Vietnam. Rick Wilson made an ad in 2004 depicting him as a friend of terrorists and showing Osama bin Laden and uh, uh, Saddam Hussein. So, I mean, just something about the background of the guys you were portraying is is worth reminding our listeners about. But in one scene, he's just gloating about his social media successes, how many hits they got, how many followers they've got, how many likes. I mean, you know, the, the kind of, you know, silly stuff that like teenagers will will talk about, you know, like or, or, you know, more than teenagers. But then, you know, to me, and this said a lot, the scene of election night. They were all congratulating themselves up until election day. They had like, you know, made the difference. There was going to be a landslide against Donald Trump. And it was a close election. And for hours on end, it wasn't clear who was winning. And the look on their faces in that scene of like, oh, my God, you know, we thought we had all this success. And have we really moved the needle? And that, you know, raises the larger question of whether what they were doing it was really effective or not. Look, I think that the the question of 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 how effective were they or weren't they is 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 one that obviously is a is complicated to debate. I think it's you know we had the same question with whether Cambridge Analytica was effective in 2016 and how could you measure their influence? Did they coerce people? Did they not? Where I come to on that question is look, I think that. The Lincoln Project was instrumental in galvanizing the kind of anti-Trump movement during 2020 online, and whether the majority of the people galvanized were progressives who did more work than they would have done because they were more amped up because of it, or whether it was the 3% of Republicans who voted against the party. I think we can we can debate that, but I think the point is they were effective in, in getting people motivated and getting Trump destabilized and having him think about them a lot more than he should be. And I think they were very key allies to the Biden push. You know, are they the only reason why Trump uh, lost? Absolutely not. I think it took an incredible coalition of all kinds of people that came together. And obviously, I think that they, you know, they may sometimes give themselves more credit than, than they're due. But I don't think that it, I don't think the the results would have been the same without them. I agree. I, I feel they were. They were effective. Maybe they, like I said, maybe they didn't defeat Susan Collins and Lindsey Graham, but I do feel they galvanized people. They got people excited. They they got into Trump's head. 
They got into Brad Pascal's head. They got into Jason Miller's head. Those are guys that were supposed to focus on getting Trump reelected. I have to say also the data work that Madrid's team did and the 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 actual and and that Connor Rogers where he placed his ads where he places I, I feel like they were they were definitely successful in the mission. Of course we were all shocked. I think the whole country was shocked he got 74 million votes. Maybe we should have known that going in a little bit more but you know America is what it is. <laughs> By the same token, you know, your series really demonstrates, or, or at least to me, it demonstrated that these guys and their techniques are everything that's wrong with the way our current democratic discourse occurs, that it is mean, it's sharp, it's not productive. And it seems like the takeaway is that their techniques are ascendant and that they, they won't stop. Did you see any glimmers of hope whatsoever that their methods or their methodology are changing? You mean in terms of their, their sharpness? And I, I mean, I got to say, I, I disagree with you. I feel, I mean, I don't know, maybe because I was just reading an article about Peter Thiel this morning. And Peter Thiel is like, to me, uh, one of the most dangerous people in our country in terms of what, what's happening to our democracy. He's putting $30 million into J.D. Vance and into all these candidates that are denying the elections. So I'll say I agree with, with, with Mike about what he said about Rick's ads about Max Cleland and all that, and they were awful. The difference about the ads they've done now or they're doing now is they're all real. They're all honest, right? They had to embellish shit for years to find shit on these people which was terrible. There's so much bad going on right now with these election deniers and with these MAGA people that I think the only thing that will break through, Victoria, is, is these ads. And I, I think I like their the fact, as long as they don't cross the line and become dishonest, which they were, I think, as Republicans when they were. But maybe I'm wrong. I I think we. This is the world we live in, and the age we live in. So I don't think it's going to stop. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we we wanted to kind of show people how audiences how the political sausage is made, right? And I think we we got to kind of see the 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 ugliness of it. And I think Victoria, there's a sad reality that we have to face in America today, which is that we've allowed for our elections to be the biggest score in the election game globally right i mean people people this is a multi-billion dollar business and a lot of people come to play and as mike madrid says like there is an outrage machine that a lot of people are making money oh off. I, so, I was wait, just so, so gonna you're pick saying up that on my, that. Uh, my naive desire for sober policy debates and ads is uh is not going to change <laughs> Well, I'm not saying it's naive, but I'm saying what I'm saying is like it's it's like I I think there is a reckoning we have we I think we grow up with a nostalgia about what America is, and then I think where we are today is just so shocking, and we're hoping for wholesome politics, but it's a war, and 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 are they the reason the war existed? I don't know, but to fi I think what Fisher's trying to say is like we're in a war, and don't we you know we need weapons we to, fight to fight war. back. Hold on a second. The great, I, I just want to pick up on something that Kareem just said, because I think one of the great things about your film is somebody could watch it and come away completely disagreeing with everything you're saying on this podcast. And Kareem, you just referred to one scene that really struck me, and it's Mike Madrid, another one of your principals, after I believe he's already become disaffected uh, from uh, the Lincoln Project. And he says, uh, is making money on an outrage machine helping democracy or is it hurting? And that was a question I had in watching the film. And, uh, you know, I think if one raises the question that Mike Madrid is asking there, it might lead in a very different direction than the conclusion you guys are drawing from your own film. No, I hear what you're saying, but I'm sorry, Mike, to my to that point, who who's to blame on that, right? The Lincoln Project or Mark Zuckerberg, who's made billions off of the divisiveness of America or, or our media machine. Fair point, or, or but Fox, is more right? like, mudslinging we have, helping we have or not? We have algorithms, we have, we have a yeah. business model on divisiveness in America that we that we don't that we haven't stopped. We have done nothing to change 
the, the, the era of a post-Citizens United world that we live in, right? So it's like we have structural problems that have led us to this insane situation. I'm not saying that that what they're doing is noble. I think it's, it's horrible. I think making money off divisive politics is not something that we should aspire to. But but that's exactly what these guys were out. doing. Easy to single out one group and say, you're the reason why this happened. And, and that's what I'm disagreeing with, right? I don't think it's fair to say you're the bad guy. No, this we're, we are all complicit in allowing for the system to exist. And every election cycle, we get all shocked about it again. And then we forget. But this is a problem. You know, we've allowed our country to be desecrated, in my opinion, to this to this level, right? So this is what but we want. I want to throw it back to you and Victoria, uh, you guys. So- if it, the other side is going to fling shit at, at, at all these people, lies, lies, because that's what they do, right? They, if you watch the J.D. Vance debate, if you watch the Herschel Walker debate, if you watch the, just full of lies, okay? So what do we do? Just sit back and let them attack or do you go after them? But don't go after them with lies, you go after them with the truth and try to make people understand. Well, I think, uh, you know, I, I would say, I think it maybe has also to do with tone. And I think that, you know, just back to Jennifer Horn for a minute, it seemed to me that she was raising that issue and that she was uncomfortable with the tone of some of the content that they were putting out. And she said, look, that, you know, our job is to persuade people to vote for Biden and, you know, insulting people doesn't help. So it, you know, the, the, I guess question the question is, what's effective? Yeah, right. the question is, what works? Exactly. I agree. I agree. That That's the real question, right? What is effective, right? And I think one can raise legitimate questions as to whether their techniques, I, I, I grant that it got them incredible social media likes and traction, and I grant it got them plenty of media play and plenty of cable TV time. But were they preaching to the choir? Were they just, you know, congratulating themselves on, you know, uh, doing ads that, you know, people who are already, you know, despised Donald Trump and knew what a danger he was uh, appreciated? Or were they really reaching? Well, the, there was the, definitely the, the a small start. segment of the elect electorate that makes the difference. Yeah, there was a listen, like I said, there's a cathartic feeling that they were expressing a lot of how people felt. And they felt good about that. People were like, thank God, somebody's letting out my real feelings. For sure. That was part of it. Was that effective? I don't know. That was more therapeutic, I think, for people than than effective. But but I mean, we don't know. And it is, uh, it, it, you know, we're at a really terrifying moment, right? And uh, at, at the end of the day, I think the ultimate mission of defeating MAGA, defeating Donald Trump is a great mission. Now, I don't know. Maybe we got to figure out a better way. <laughs> I don't know. They're, now, I think they're all doing it on their own. Like there's three disparate groups now. I think you have, you know, you have Reed, Rick and Stuart, and then you have Mike and Ron and Jennifer doing their thing. And then you have Steve off doing his thing. So they're all fighting it now in different ways. But we, I think we did capture a moment where it was really all firing on one, one cylinder and it was really exciting at that moment. And, and then I, they turn the guns on each other, you know. I mean, yeah, we well, like you know, it's like it's like an old, it's like an old western. Like after the score, you know, everyone turns. It like <laughs> you can't trust your own team. You don't know who's going to turn the gun on you left. And but I think that's also speaks to, for me at least, it was like you know, the people you need to fight an election aren't necessarily the people you need to build policy, right? I think we see that very clear with these guys. Like they're they live in the fight. They're always in the fight. That's all they know. And so. They don't know how to then put the put the guard down, and I think Ron has a great point. And in, and in, and in, in towards the episode, I think it's five. He's like, you know, imagine you know, imagine the firepower that we put at Trump aimed at you, right? Like that's what starts happening as the guns turn on each other. And I think that to us, to me and Fisher, we had no idea that, that would happen, and then it led to just a series of further weaponized fronts from each kind of faction wrestling for control, credit, money you know, the abuse allegations. So it just kind of spiraled. So let's talk about those controversies because, you know, they come at you, you know, what I think not till the fourth episode, really. And it's quite an eye opener. The first is the personal enrichment. These guys were, you know, professional political gunslingers, mercenaries, whatever you want to call them, who had worked campaigns and made gobs of money, you know, in the past. 
Now they're really raking it in. $90 million they raise in the 2020 cycle, 50 million of which, according to the Associated Press, goes to their own firms, firms that they all had ties to. So there was a you know, degree of personal enrichment here that was pretty staggering. When did you first see signs of that? How disturbed were you when you saw that? And you know, at what point did you understand the magnitude of how they were raking it in and essentially being grifters just like Donald Trump? Well, the Associated Press reporting about the 50 million, we actually know that of that 50 million, a lot of that went to buying ads because 22 million of that was Tusk and 24 million of that or something was Summit. And Tusk was Ron. And Summit was Reed Galen, who was one of the founders. Right, right. right. But I can tell you that a lot of I don't think they nobody got really, really rich. They they got paid very well. But I'm in showbiz. I, you know, I sometimes do commercials. I get we get paid well doing that stuff. So it wasn't like anybody got rich, rich. And I think the 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 mistake that those guys made is they should have been more transparent because these articles came out and they should have said, look, I made this, I made that, I made this, I made that. Nobody made $50 million or even close to it. But because of the system. So 10 million, 20 million. I mean, do you know? I have a feeling, I don't think anybody made more than $3 million personally, except maybe one person because of commissions and his deal. When he placed ads, he got a percentage of those ads commission. Who is that? I can't say, but because I, I can't say, because I don't want to like, I'm not sure, but I don't think anybody got really rich. And like I said, they made, they got paid for what they did. But I think a few of them got paid a lot less than others. Yeah. And that's where the shit hit the fan. That's where the fight was. Is that, that's where is the that fight some was. people came in like Madrid, Madrid came in thinking this was like all for the fight. He had no idea. Like I was there genuinely. He had no idea the amount of money, even other people who then became his allies without naming names. He had no idea that they were also making money as well. So he, but I remember Madrid felt like an idiot. He was like, "What? The, what? Am I the only one who thought this was for for America?" Like, everyone else. So, was so, so what happened was the the reason that there was problems was that I think that they all thought they were founders, right? The eight of them, really seven, because George was kind of you know off in D.C. doing his thing. George Conway. George Conway. And the seven of them all assumed, or at least three or four of them thought they were all making the same, but it wasn't. So that's when it all went bad. Is some of them made more than others, and then that's when the that's when the shit hit the fan when they found out. But to your point, you know, there was this thing where okay, it became like the Lincoln Project is 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 a smashing success, and the Lincoln Project's a brand, and it could be anything. And we now have like billboards, and now we have like signs in front of people's houses and we have t-shirts and memorabilia and like we have a podcast and we have a tv show and it's growing and now we have hollywood producers chasing us and telling us that we're like a tech company and a studio and oh my god wait we might turn this into like a media company and hey fisher and cream sometime next year we may be in la opening an office and maybe making like tv shows that are scripted and we're like whoa whoa whoa, whoa. so it did start to get crazy and you're like what like, <laughs> how do you go from 30 second ads to this like you know we all love a success story, but is this is this realistic? You know, and and this was uh we we saw that we saw the way and then all these celebrities coming at them wanting to be in their ads and you know and and just more and more people piling in on the kind of celebrity nature of it all, and the ego kept getting bigger and bigger. Um, and I think some people felt like okay, well we're all in the score together. And then there was this reckoning where it was like no 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 we're in the score. Y'all aren't part of that. And like, there's a clear, <laughs> yeah, clear distinction yeah, there. Yeah. And that's when it became really aggressive internally. Cause it was like, oh yeah, well, if you're going to do that, well, I'm, I'm going to do this. this. And yeah. then More than money just brought them down. There was something else. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> well let's, but, but, let's but get into it. Everything started to get weaponized. <laughs> like you have to, I, I, what I saw firsthand was like, these guys know how to weaponize information better than anybody. That's their bread and butter. That's what they grew up doing. And then they every everything became weaponized, you know, internally. 
Well, let's get into that. That something else. It was allegations of sexual misconduct by one of the major founders. Yeah, which was, you know, we obviously Cream and I had no idea. Uh, we'd never met John Weaver. We still never met John Weaver. Uh, when we got there, he had had a heart attack and he wasn't involved. He was on a couple of Zooms, as you see, you see at the end, but th- those Zooms were later. Yeah, that was Wow. Talk that about was crazy. Like, I mean, that was for Fisher and I, that was just like, that's when we went to like the twilight zone. We're like, yeah, I don't know. What do we do? What is this? Yeah. We were, we were just we like, like, stop the project. Like, we didn't even know how this stop the project in major film. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, it was the perfect curve. It was so crazy. It was so crazy. And we couldn't get information. And all of a sudden no one wanted to talk to us. And um, because we did know January, like Stuart and Schmidt did say, in October or even in September, they told us January 6th is when you can't, you have to film up until January 6th because shit will go down when they're trying to certify the election. They told us this. So we always assume we'd kind of end there. We knew election night wouldn't end, but we didn't know that all of a sudden this other thing was gonna hit. And then, you know, them fighting about the money and the Weaver thing just was like a real shocker, you know, which was weird because I wanted to get into I was always really curious because I know so many of these Republicans who are homophobic are gay. Right. Not in the Lincoln Project. But I was talking to Schmidt about obviously Lindsey Graham is, you know, we all have our our suspicions about him and, you know, all these politicians we know who are like they don't want gay people to have rights. Yet there's rumors you know, why all these, you know, anyway. So I was always trying to pull information about gay Republicans when we were making the film and no one wanted to talk about it. <laughs> Little did we know, John Weaver. You were sitting on it <laughs> right. right there. And uh, yeah, that was uh, that was a real shocker. There's a sort of contradiction in this part of the story that I want to ask you about, because as it's unfolding, uh, you show Connor, Connor Rogers, I believe is his yeah. name, who uh, shows an email. He, he talks about how the founders of the Lincoln Project knew about the allegations for uh, about John Weaver for months, I think he says since yeah. June of 2020. And you show an email that he sent about this, right? At which clearly would give credence if he if he was emailing the partners ab- about this uh, to the allegations that there was a cover up going on. They knew about the, uh, what John Weaver was up to in grooming young men, reaching out to them, trying to uh, offer them jobs for sex, basically. Yet at the end, you show at, at the very end of the movie that the Lincoln Project had hired a law firm, Paul Hastings. You actually refer to that during the film, but you show the results at the end in which you say the uh, the law firm cleared them of all wrongdoing. Now, the, the law firm did not, as far as I can tell, and Lincoln Project did not release any report that that the law firm did. Uh, it did re- released a summary, which, which it said the law firm found no communications nor conduct reported to the Lincoln Project or its leadership involving Mr. Weaver and any employee, contractor, or volunteer that would rise to the level of actionable sexual harassment. So it raises the question, what was that email that Connor was showing? Who got it? What did it allege? And how do you square that with the conclusion of the law firm investigation? Well, I could just say that I believe that that email was basically not shown to everybody. From what I understand, and I, I, you know, like you can't really get anybody to say this stuff on camera, but I. I think that Reed got the email and there were a couple people that knew about it. I I don't believe that Rick Wilson, Steve Schmidt ever saw that email or Jennifer Horn. I don't believe any, I don't, I don't actually, I'm pretty sure those three people did not see that email. Maybe, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure. So uh, Reed Galen, one of the founders saw yes. it and did what? I think he sent it to a lawyer who then said, don't show this to anybody. Now there were other people that knew, about John Weaver that Connor, I'm sure, discussed it with. He would not have discussed it with Steve or Rick or or Jennifer. But and this is what I think is the problem with the whole why it all fall apart. I think communication was a huge issue for this group because I also thought that. But 
actually what we found out was that that and the reason Steve Schmidt and Rick Wilson were like, we didn't know. They literally did not know about that letter. They never saw that. letter. I think there's there's three different things here. Right. One is all the allegations that came up after the story broke, which then had like underage kids and yeah, things yeah. of that nature. That never was in Connor's letter. That's like additional stuff that came out to the surface after. Right. So that and those are things that happened before. Weaver was part of the Lincoln Project. Then there's things that then there were things that happened while he was at Lincoln Project, but wasn't physically there. Like he wasn't, there wasn't a it wasn't in the Weaver wasn't like, you know, lurking in the hallways of, of Park City. You know, like that wasn't happening. Like he wasn't actually physically there. So but but I think that what you see from our conclusion is like, you know, there was a mission, and the mission was, you know, focus on the fight. And that's not, you know let's not have this disturb the mission, you know? And I think that's what Connor wrestles with when he looks back. He's like, why didn't I say something earlier? Why didn't I do something about this more aggressively? You know, I think that's one of the things that he he feels torn about in the story. And we try to kind of bring his perspective to life as somebody who was kind of looking at both, you know, both his responsibilities in this in the situation. So guys, bring us to the to the present. I mean, the Lincoln Project still exists. I, you know, they're they're Tweets are in my uh, Twitter feed all the time. What is it now? What is the relationship between the founding members uh, right now? And I think we're all f- interested in how they reacted uh, to this documentary. <laughs> the, the the Lincoln Project is um, is Reed Galen, Stuart Stevens, Rick Wilson, and Joe Trippy, I believe, who I've never met or spoken. He came in after we finished. They are, uh, you know, they're still fighting Trump and they're fighting Josh Hawley and they're fighting Marjorie Taylor Greene. And they're fighting the MAGA movement with ads and they still exist and they're still making ads. Ron and and Mike are working together a bit. Ron has taken his own podcast now called Politicology that he does. Mike is doing campaigns around the world, fighting Bolsonaro and Brazil and stuff like that. And Steve is kind of, I think he's uh, working for uh, Democrats as a political consultant. And how have they reacted to the film? It's, it's been complicated. <laughs> it's been complicated. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, he, I, I don't think the, I, I don't think they would have signed up for it if they knew where the story was going to go. Obviously, right. I think Fisher and I are humanists. We don't like to kind of do takedowns of, of people that we spend time with. It's not really in our nature. We're not that those kinds of filmmakers. So I think in a way they got lucky with us because in the hands of a lot of other people that we work with in the industry, it would have maybe been a real kind of assault on them. But I don't think that's why we sought out to make the movie, right? I think we sought out to make the movie to use them to learn about something, a, a larger tale about America and about what it means and about what this kind of moment in American history can teach us about the, the state of our elections and where we go from here and the personalities behind them. And of course, I think for Fisher and I, the POV of the operative was a fascinating one, right? We don't get to kind of see these kind of kingmakers and who they are and like people like Stuart, you know, who tell you these tales that are just like unbelievable. I think that they, you know, they all have a different truth of, of what, it, uh, you know, for, for, for all of them. And it's hard for them to see the, kind of mixed reactions from different kinds of people. Um, Some people still love them regardless because they just fight Trump and they don't care about anything else. And a lot of people have a lot of disdain for them and some people feel betrayed by them. And I think, you know, um, when Steve- And then some people look at them. Yeah, but I I have to say, I I really, I like them all and I've gotten to really like them all. And, and, And maybe part of the thing, when I make a movie, I have to like my characters. And look, I don't always agree with them. And obviously- I fought them for years. I mean, I worked for John Kerry. I worked for, you know, Al Gore. I worked, I, I, I mean, you know, and yet they're talented at what they do and they are human beings. And, and we did catch them and some of them at a flawed moment. But ultimately, I would say a lot of them really liked it a lot. And then once the stuff comes in and once they watch it, I think it's difficult. I hate watching myself on TV, period. You know, so, you know, it's hard to look at yourself. I think Mike, Mike, also, I think it's I think where Fisher and I line up on this is that like we both feel we are in this insanely critical moment 
for the soul of the country, right? Like everything's on the line, you know, like, like Steve Schmidt says it more eloquently than I go, but it is, it is the American experiment is teetering. It, it may not continue. Right. And so it's like, are we in the time where we do purity testing of, of our rank and file and, 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 and who's with us in the army to, to fight, you know, the kind of darkness that's descended upon the country? Or do we do that after the fight's over? You know, I, I, I subscribe to the idea that we need everyone, like Stewart says, you need every useful son of a bitch you can get right now to fight this war. And then when you finish the war, then we can have purity testing. We can look at everyone's reckoning and how they got here and what they did wrong. And let's look at their 30. But right now, until, when you have to, what, what Fisher was saying, you have you know, 100 plus members of Congress who still deny the results of the election. Like we're not debating ideology. We're debating, you know, whether we we, we use democracy as a, as a tool for all of us or not. You know, these are things that I thought... I would only hear about in, in countries like in Egypt, right? I thought people, I thought, yes, the Muslim Brotherhood thought used democracy as a one-way ladder, you know, a one-way road. But I never thought American political groups, let alone the Republican Party, would be subscribing to that same bucket. But here we are, right? So I think it's like, we have to, in my opinion, look at the stakes of, of where the country's at, you know? Okay, well, well said. And look, I want to, for all the back and forth it really is uh, absolutely riveting fascinating film congratulations to both of you and the skullduggery listeners you should all tune in watch it on showtime kareem and fisher thanks for joining us thank you for thank having you guys. us thank you all three of you thank you so much mm-hmm.